0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, September eleventh, twenty twenty-three, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, the NIST Cybersecurity Team puts final touches on a foundational cyber document. Plus, TSA launches updated approaches to a never-ending program of passenger screening on this 9-11. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, highly anticipated cybersecurity regulations are hitting mile 21 in a marathon of rulemaking. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is very close to finalizing sweeping cyber incident reporting requirements for critical infrastructure operators. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us the latest. And, Justin, where exactly is CISA on this rulemaking? And tell us what it would apply to.
2: Yes, CISA is finishing the notice of proposed rulemaking for the cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure act of 2022 that was the news from cisa director jen easterly last week at the billington Cybersecurity summit in washington easterly says the notice should be out later this year or early next year and that would actually put cisa ahead of the march 2024 deadline uh for this notice to go out that is in the law so clearly they're moving with some pace here Uh, You know, that legislation passed last year was a big deal. It will require critical infrastructure entities across all 16 critical sectors to report cyber incidents to CISA within 72 hours of discovering them. But first, CISA has to go through this really complex rulemaking process where they define some key terms, such as what organizations are actually required to report cyber incidents within those critical sectors, and then what kind of incidents rise to the level of being required to be reported. Uh, Those are just a couple of the things that will come out as part of this rulemaking process. And then there will be a comment process, and the rules actually don't have to go into effect until September 2025, according to the law. It will be very interesting to see if CISA tries to shift that up a little bit or not as part of this rulemaking.
1: And when they get this information from industry, what do they want to do with it?
2: That's a key question here. It's something that CISA has sketched out a little bit, but there will be more information in the rulemaking. One key thing here is getting a critical infrastructure organization to report cyber a cyber incident allows CISA to then help that critical infrastructure organization if they need assistance uh, responding to the hack or whatever it might be. Another thing that CISA hopes to do is is share information about a cyber incident that might affect other organizations so they can quickly either patch or somehow defend themselves from being affected or figure out if they also maybe were hacked by a similar exploit. Lauren Bose-Hayes is Senior Advisor for Technology at CISA. She discussed those two scenarios, but also that this data will help CISA uncover deeper cybersecurity trends across the nation.
3: Where right now do we look to for our sort of source of truth on trends in cybersecurity? We don't have a super clear answer to that, right? We, we try, certainly. But we've got a lot of different vendors telling us different information about what they're seeing. But that's obviously, you know, directed a lot by the types of tooling that they own and the types of insight that they have. Similarly, you've got different agencies with different levels of insight. And so I am really excited to have sort of a centralizing function around cyber incident reporting data to be able to then put some of that information out to the public, out to the entities who are reporting, out to the sectors, et cetera.
1: And again, that's Laura Bose-Hayes, Senior Advisor for Technology at CISA. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And the other incident reporting requirements across government, do they have a way to mesh and kind of harmonize all of that with these new rules coming from CISA?
2: That's the goal. Uh, You know, a lot of officials are saying uh, this harmonization uh, issue is is such a major issue for both government and industry alike. It actually came to the forefront earlier this month, uh, House Homeland Security Members uh, sent a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission really uh, lambasting the SEC over new rules, cyber incident reporting rules, that they say conflict with the incident reporting requirements under development at CISA. And so there are different regulatory agencies that have the power to also implement cyber incident reporting rules. The SEC rules would, of course, apply to public companies only. But, you know, there's this overlap that's happening. Hayes says CISA is looking to harmonize incident reporting processes to the greatest extent that it can. CISA can. The law allows CISA to sign these interagency agreements to share incident reports with other agencies and CISA is also building a web-based portal to be kind of a singular way to share incident reports. So they're hoping to streamline this as much as
1: possible. All right. And then CISA is not the only agency making rules and regulations for cybersecurity. We've got the long ingestation cybersecurity maturity model certification, CMMC, from the Defense Department. What the heck is going on there? Where are they in rulemaking?
2: Yeah, it's really the second ingestion after this DOD kind of coughed it up the first time. But, you <laughs> know, DOD submitted the CMMC rulemaking package to the White House earlier this summer. And once implemented, that program will, of course, allow DOD to require an assessment, a third party assessment of a defense contractor's compliance with. NIST security controls. Matthew Travis is the chief executive of the nonprofit cyber accreditation body. That's the organization that will oversee these third party assessments. He says the rulemaking will likely be out of the White House and available for DOD to publish before the end of the calendar
4: year. We expect it to come out for public comment, November, December timeframe, and then industry will have a chance to respond to that. And then DOD will have to adjudicate those comments and We'll see, we're hopeful that CMMC will actually go live sometime in 2024, probably the back end of
1: 2024. Well, they can always hope. And is there going to be strong pushback once again? I mean, industry is not all that cool with CMMC and hasn't been from the outset.
2: Yeah, well, this is why DOD really revised the program uh, almost two years ago. The initial program was going to require just about every contractor that handles any form of controlled, unclassified information to get one of these third-party assessments. Now DOD has kind of split it where if you have less sensitive uh, information, uh, then maybe you you can just continue to do the self-attestation, but there will be a a pretty strong subset of tens of thousands of contractors that still need to get the third-party assessment. DOD also built in things like, uh, you know, the, the contractors are able to kind of punt On some requirements, if they can prove they have a plan to implement them. So they they put more flexibility into the program. John Sherman is DOD's chief information officer. He also spoke about CMMC at the Billington Cyber Summit.
0: This has been a lot of work to get CMMC right. We think a lot about how this looks from the other side here, implementing 800-171 NIST standards, particularly for small and medium businesses. That's where our heart was going into this, making sure this is implementable. We tried to simplify it a bit, not making it overly burdensome. But having cybersecurity for our DIB that's working with CUI is non-negotiable. We've got to get this right. And that's
2: John Sherman, DOD's CIO, talking about the CMMC program.
1: All right, so there is a lot cooking here, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And later this hour, we'll hear from NIST as it updates its cybersecurity framework. Up next, TSA launches updated approaches to a never-ending program of passenger screening. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. One thing the Transportation Security Administration never stops tinkering with is passenger screening, both techniques and supporting technology. Now, screening is light years from what it was in the days right after an earlier 9-11. Now it's published what it calls an open architecture roadmap aimed at improving screening performance. For details on the roadmap and its goals, we turn to TSA Systems Engineer Eric Rexstad. Mr. Rexstad, good to have you with us.
5: Yes, thank you for having me and anxious to, to have this conversation.
1: So tell us, what is the open architecture roadmap and what will it actually do? What will it guide TSA in doing next?
5: From open architecture standpoint, I think when people hear that phrase, they have a lot of different ideas on what that means. And so the roadmap itself is really focused on being that foundational document, helping to establish the guiding principles for TSA moving forward and really honing into where we wanna go in, in the future. We want to get to that connected transportation security system of systems. And the methodology that we're looking towards is that open architecture methodology. And what I mean by that is going towards a standards-based approach so that systems are interoperable, getting to the level where we can build components and then bring those components together to provide ultimately a, a superior end product and end system. So the roadmap itself is focused on really the what and the why and not diving too much into the the how and the when. So what are we going after? We're going after that connected transportation security system as systems, leveraging a standards-based approach.
1: Will this also allow more frequent or more contingent-based updates to the systems that might be in place as different threats emerge or you discover, hey, this would shave off Twelve milliseconds, and that adds up to 10,000 hours of screening a year, that type of thing.
5: Exactly. So TSA has a vision to become more of an agile agency. And so moving towards open architecture allows us to leverage all the industry to bring new capability to our screening environment, whether that's an algorithm developer, a hardware developer, any of those things. So you talk about a new threat emerging. Why work with just one entity to get that? Let's work with all those software developers, all those people with AI experience, machine learning experience to tap into that knowledge and bring new capability to light.
1: And you mentioned earlier, this is not just about hardware, you know, and changing that out, but TSA does acquire and maintain a huge base of very big pieces of hardware for screening the baggage and screening the people and their junk they carry on with them like camels. I can't believe what people carry on nowadays, but you got to look at it all. But I imagine the goal would not have to be replacing an entire gigantic machine every time there's an advance in screening technology, but could that machine and the APIs, for example, be standardized such that you could give new life to an old piece of hardware that still runs? The belts still work and the flapper gates are still in good shape.
5: Yeah, exactly. And you're hitting on the huge mission space that we have. So we're trying to handle over 2 million passengers a day at over 430 airports. You mentioned the equipment. We have over 2,300 screening lanes and have 50,000 officers running that equipment. And we have to keep that equipment operating. But you think of the complexity that that brings. Our officers have to deal with the variations of those equipment, the buttonology, the different procedures associated with it. Putting all that burden on the shoulders of the officers is not where we want to be. And so taking advantage of open architecture will help us to streamline that experience, allowing that officer to have the same buttonology regardless of the hardware and allowing us to tap into different providers of software or hardware. So, yeah, to your point, it changes our kind of recapitalization to a method where we have more ownership in that refresh and can continuously be developing and providing capability to the field.
1: Almost as if the machines had uh, the PNRDL standard that came to transmissions in cars many, many years ago. So no matter what car you drive, the next click is neutral. Exactly. We're speaking with Eric Rexstad. He's a systems engineer at the Transportation Security Administration. And again, this might be putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but doesn't TSA have an ultimate goal at some point in the grand future of screening without all of the lanes and stuff where people just walk by maybe an archway they don't even be aware of and they are screened? I mean, that's not going to happen next week or next year, maybe not this decade, but does all of this lead toward that kind of ultimate goal, do you think, in the long term?
5: Most definitely. So, again, our goal is to get to that connected transportation security system systems. We leverage a standard-based approach, which opens our opportunity to work with multiple industry partners, and that's in the hardware or software space. So that lends us to the ability to identify what is that new technology, and we can easily integrate it into the future checkpoint system. Uh, Where we are right now is that they are completely independent systems requiring us to do a complete replacement of that equipment, complete new training, uh, new procedures, again, the complexities of the officers. So with the standardization, we bring that back together and allow for that streamlining of capability and ultimately getting to higher security effectiveness, better throughput, and the customer experience as well.
1: Sure. Although the training is not too bad. You get a couple of weeks in Las Vegas when it happens. But if you get out of the hotel room very much, it's hard to tell. And getting to the roadmap document itself, it's only 28 pages. So it seems like a high level type of thing for a standards roadmap. I mean, the Bluetooth standard, you know, would take up 28 pages of fine type. So what's in this document and what should industry take from it, do you think?
5: It's meant to be foundational. So we tried to keep it short and to the point. It's not meant to provide all the details of exactly how we're going to get to the end state or when we're going to get to the end state, but again, getting to the, the what and the why. So what is it that we're going after and why do we need to go after it? We identified multiple reasons on the why we do have that critical mission to protect the nation's transportation security system to ensure freedom of movement for people and commerce with the idea or the vision that we do that in an agile way and the open architecture roadmap highlights how using standards will get us to there there are four goals within that roadmap which touches on some of those key aspects of where we're trying to go and where Complementary activities and documentation will be developed to outline. As far as what industry should hear from that, there's a specific goal to start providing that data pipeline so that we're providing a wealth of stream of commerce images, threat images, and engaging with all of industry partners to continuously develop new capability, likely in the algorithm space, so that we're not at the, let's just develop it and try to figure out a way to provide it to the field. In some time, but every year every couple of months we're refreshing and improving how we're doing algorithms to provide lower false alarms to improve that customer experience or improving detection as emerging threats appear
1: and someday they'll be able to squirt a uh, something a light beam at a bottle and know it's really suntan lotion and not some kind of horrible substance.
5: Yeah, that's definitely one of the efforts that we have is to to improve detection of, of liquids and, and using new technology. And that all plays into to open architecture as you get that sensor information, what can you do with that? And so moving away from just one vendor's opinion on how or way of doing that, we can tap into, let's take that sensor information off the machine and use it in any way we possibly can. So tap into those great minds, again, in artificial intelligence, machine learning, that they may be able to use that information differently than our our legacy vendors can.
1: And just a final question. There is an external group, not external to DHS, but external to TSA. And that is the transportation security lab that actually verifies what vendors and industry say they've got before and testing it before it goes over to operational deployment at TSA. Were they part of this open architecture thinking to the lab?
5: Yeah. So there's multiple parts to that. One is we do have a specific goal in the open architecture roadmap that talks about we have to evaluate policies, processes, products. like Organizationally, this is going to change how we do business. One of the things we highlight is it's going to change how we do testing. Historically, we've tested a box, so a a single solution by one provider, which includes hardware, software, and that gets certified. Now we're talking about components. And so breaking up those components and putting them together in different configurations, having to certify that. So we actually engaged with DHS S&T early on this and have been partnering with them continuously. We actually had an industry day last week with them in partnership at TSA headquarters, where we brought in nearly 200 participants from the industry to talk about how does this change the certification process, specifically when you look at machine learning and open
1: architecture. All right, so you've got some work cut out then for the next few years, really.
5: Oh, most definitely. We outlined in the roadmap itself, just some high level goals and a pathway of sort of measures of success for the next two years. But we will be diving deep into all the ways that we can bring open architecture to reality and bring that capability to the field and improve that customer experience.
1: Eric Rexstad is a systems engineer at the Transportation Security Administration. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: We'll post this interview along with a link to the roadmap itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash drive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts still to come armageddon known as the budget for 2024 battle starts today but first the nist cybersecurity team puts final touches on a foundational document this is the federal drive with tom temen here on federal news radio part of the federal news network welcome back to the federal drive with tom temen here on federal news network The cybersecurity team at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is about to finalize a new version of a signature document, the Cybersecurity Framework. Next week, it holds a workshop to get one last round of input on the framework draft. Joining me with more, the chief of NIST's Applied Cybersecurity Division, Kevin Stein. Mr. Stein, good to have you with us. Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks. Let's begin basically what exactly is the cybersecurity framework that you're about to launch version 2.0 of, and maybe then tell us how that relates to the various publications that NIST has, uh, the library of specifics on cybersecurity.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the cybersecurity framework, in my mind, is a tool to help agencies and other organizations, certainly a very broad user community, to better understand, manage, and reduce cybersecurity risk. It's based on existing standards and guidelines. It's based on existing practices for organizations to really help them do that. And the body of NIST cybersecurity and privacy resources, the special publications and other outputs that we produce with the community are really intended to help organizations achieve the cybersecurity outcomes that are expressed in the cybersecurity framework.
1: And the framework is used pretty much across the board, correct? Across the government, but industry also often adopts that as a way of looking at cyber, correct? Yeah, very much so. The framework does have a
4: very broad kind of user community and audience. I'd say it initially started back in 2013 with an executive order that was really focused on voluntary use by critical infrastructure owners and operators. But over the last decade, we've seen it become required for federal agencies through follow on executive orders. We've seen just tremendous voluntary adoption by industries, by other layers of government, state and local governments, for example, and even internationally, because of the value that common language that the framework provides just has a tremendous value proposition for all different shapes and sizes of organizations.
1: And could one reason for that be is that you get wide participation each time you launch a document or, more importantly, the updates, which come pretty regularly? We're now at 2.0 of the framework. I mean, who all gives you input here? So we get input and we actually actively seek input from a very
4: diverse audience, very diverse user base. Again, all the types of organizations I mentioned before, public, private, nonprofits, you know, large, small, you name it. We really go out and try to engage with as many parts of the stakeholder community as possible, both domestically and internationally, to get informed on things that will uh, – you know, how's the framework working for them today – uh, what are the things that work well? What are the things that need greater clarity? Are there new features or uh, you know additions to the framework that would provide even greater value? And that type of input through the different types of stakeholder engagement we do, including the workshops like the one we're hosting next week, are really central to our ability to do that.
1: How specific does the framework get to the particular, I don't know, environment at the moment for cybersecurity? Because different types of threats come and go. Solar winds type of attack happened, and wow, that's something new. And then there was the log-based attacks. Well, that was something new, too. There's always something new like that. How does the framework take into account the fact that there's always some new threat that the landscape? This year is different from, you know, a month ago.
4: Yeah, it absolutely is. And that landscape will be potentially slightly different from one organization or one sector to the next. You know, we want to keep the framework. We want it to be threat informed, but also technology and sector agnostic and threat agnostic in some ways. So the framework is really you know, structured to be outcome focused. So what are the important cybersecurity outcomes that organizations might need to achieve to help them better identify, assess, manage, and really reduce risk? And that would take into account, you know, the diverse types of threats, both things we've observed today, as well as things that you know maybe we haven't observed yet, but will be new things that affect agencies and other organizations. So really taking that technology and business process neutral approach is actually one of the values of the framework. And, and I think why we see such broad adoption because
1: it's flexible. So the idea is to teach people to fish but not put a worm on their hook.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it.
1: All right. We're speaking with Kevin Stein. He is chief of the Applied Cybersecurity Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Is it possible to write something like this in reasonably plain English?
4: You know, we've tried our hardest to do that. You know, certainly a lot of the resources we produce are on very technical topics, and we try to use plain language as much as possible to describe those both, uh, you know, what it is and, and, and why it's important, why organizations should care. Uh, At some point, we do get into the nitty gritty technical details. But I think the cybersecurity framework tried to break that mold a little bit because of the diverse audience. We wanted this to be really a big tent approach, bring as many types of users and different communities in, not just the cybersecurity professionals, but the C-suites and the board of directors who have such a critical role in the cybersecurity kind of risk management process, but also the other parts of organizations that have an outsized influence on cybersecurity, whether it's a legal or acquisition or human resources, you know, all of those organizations, uh, parts of organizations have very uh, important roles and have to be brought into this discussion. And we can't do that through a deep technical discussion, you know, that unique cybersecurity language that many of us speak, but not everyone does. So the framework was really developed in a way, and and it's always being improved to help be more, more of a digestible resource for very different types of people.
1: And you're not exactly engaging in rulemaking here, but you use some of the forms of rulemaking, especially taking in comments and publishing them. And just looking around your site, it looks like you make a pretty good effort at making sure this whole process is transparent by actively publishing and giving links to all the comments that everyone has made.
4: Yeah, you know, everything we produce in our NIST cybersecurity and privacy program is done in a very open and transparent and collaborative way. And certainly the framework has followed that exact same process. I think that really helps to instill both trust in the process, but also trust in the final product that we produce. In this case, you know, whether it's a standard or a framework or some other resource. And I think, you know, the benefit of that is that I think it leads to greater and more meaningful adoption of those resources, which is ultimately what we want to see. You know, these resources being used and adopted in ways that make improvements to you know our cybersecurity within organizations, but also across the nation as well. And workshops and other stakeholder engagement are such a critical part of that.
1: And in recent years we've seen the emergence and the lavish funding growth of the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency over at the Homeland Security Department. Do you collaborate with them a lot since they own much of the operational aspects of cyber for the federal government?
4: Yeah, we absolutely do. We we collaborate with many federal agencies, I would venture to say probably all in some way, uh, but very closely with CISA in a number of different areas. Certainly, you know, because they have that keen operational focus and and their resource and they have tremendous expertise and relationships with agencies and the private sector on those operational matters. We want to learn from them and hopefully, you know, help inform some of their activities as well. I think their operational role really helps to inform. Our cybersecurity guidance, our frameworks and other resources to continue to make sure those are going to be responsive to the the current threat environment and the needs of the community. And through our development process for these resources, uh, absolutely, we share with them uh, in hopes to inform some of their operational activities as well. So it's a great relationship we have, very strong one.
1: And tell us about the workshop that's next week, kind of the final round of input before you go from draft 2.0 to final.
4: Yeah, we've had a couple of virtual and hybrid workshops over the last year leading up to where we are today with the framework. I'm super excited about next week's. Uh, this will be the last kind of formal workshop uh, before we intend to issue a final 2.0, Cybersecurity Framework 2.0, in the winter of 2024. Next week's workshop. It's a two-day workshop. The first day is going to be a hybrid. There will be an in-person component as well as a virtual component for folks to to follow along around the world. That first day is going to be entirely panel-based. Uh, we'll have experts from different parts of the industry, uh, industry and government uh, across different sectors, you know, helping to you know share their expertise and inform some of the the key improvements that we're seeking to make in the framework, whether it be around organizational governance for cybersecurity or cybersecurity supply chain, the relationship standards and guidelines and other critical areas as well. So super excited for that. The second day is going to be uh, in-person only, and those are really going to be the the roll-up-your-sleeves working sessions where we have uh, facilitated uh, discussions, smaller group discussions, where we really go deep into the framework, look at the actual text that's in the framework, and make sure that the words we're using and the things we're focusing on are the right things, and we're doing that in a way that is going to be meaningful to the community. So we're, we're super excited. I know we, we always get so much out of these, and I, I'm confident next week will be the same.
1: Kevin Stein is chief of the Applied Cybersecurity Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it.
1: And we'll post this interview along with links to everything you need to know about the Cybersecurity Framework 2.0 at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Armageddon, better known as getting to a budget for 2024, starts today. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Now that the House has returned, Congress this week makes the final push to do, well, exactly what? Before the fiscal year expires in a couple of weeks, we get the play-by-play from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. All right, so both chambers are now officially back in town. The fiscal year is over in two weeks. There's several scenarios here, huh?
0: There are a lot of scenarios, uh, some of them not so good, including the possibility of yet another uh, government shutdown. So what is happening today is the Senate is rolling out the old minibus and trying to get it in the legislative road, trying to basically package three major appropriations bills, including Veterans Affairs, HUD and other agencies, and trying to get this package of legislative bills, three appropriations bills passed. They'll have a big amendment process and they're trying to get back to regular order, which they haven't done in a long time. And really what they're trying to do is get ahead of the House. The House now just getting ready to convene and they both have very, very different priorities. The House, as we've talked about over the last several months, uh, many conservatives saying they are not going to go to the spending levels that uh, Democrats and Republicans in the Senate have tentatively agreed to. So I think we're looking at a uh, major clash between the two chambers coming up. We'll get the first chapter of all of this uh, this week as the Senate moves ahead on these spending bills, as I mentioned, and then we'll have to see where the House is going. What is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy going to do? He has signaled that he wants to go to a short-term spending bill, a a continuing resolution with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. However, many of these members within his conference don't want to do that and and have actually spoken openly about the fact that they wouldn't mind a government shutdown. So it's going to be really interesting to see the clash
1: between these two chambers. So potentially, Kevin McCarthy could get enough votes using Democrats and some Republicans to go along with the Senate approach of a short-term CR, but ironically he could lose the speakership over that.
0: Right. They could, because of when he had all those series of votes to eventually become the House Speaker, uh, they did include that provision to vacate the chair. And that has been mentioned a few times by some of these more conservative members of his conference, that if they don't like the way things are going, they are holding out that threat. And that was always a worry among more moderate Republicans in the House that that could happen. So we'll have to see how hard the House Freedom Caucus really pushes. Sometimes they make a lot of noise and then they Back off at the last minute. Uh, right now, what it looks like is that if there's enough Democratic support in the House to get a short term measure passed, it would probably go through early November, is what they're talking about right now. But again, there's that threat if uh, they don't go along with it or the Democrats don't give enough votes to uh, Speaker McCarthy on the other side of the aisle, uh, that they could potentially have some type of a shutdown in the coming weeks or months. And then we'll have to see what happens if they do pass the short term. Measure. Of course, that's just a kick the can down the road type of scenario where they're still going to have to reconcile whatever the Senate and whatever the House ultimately does. And right now they are very far apart.
1: And kind of like someone playing a piccolo walking by the edge of a great tank battle. <laughs> you have this bill from Virginia Representative Don Beyer and Virginia Senator Tim Kaine that would prevent shutdowns by having an automatic CR when these situations happen. But Again, that's sort of like the little flute music at the side of the battle – not much going to happen from it. Kind
0: of one of those, wouldn't it be pretty to think so scenarios. We do see these types of bills introduced anytime there is rumor or discussion about the fact that there could be a government shutdown. Uh, Virginia Senator uh, Mark Warner several years ago uh, introduced a similar measure. Other lawmakers have as well. This one is pretty simple, though. It does have uh, its merits for sure. Essentially, it's just called the End Shutdowns Act, and it would automatically kick in a continuing resolution on October 1st, the start of the fiscal year, if Congress cannot reach an agreement on appropriations. And as these proposals go, this is one of the more straightforward ones that I've seen. Again, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. They're always well-intentioned. There's always talk about the fact that nobody wants a shutdown. And that's certainly the case in the Senate. The Senate, Democrats and Republicans have repeatedly stated during this past week when they first got back that they don't want to shut down. But of course, as I alluded to, there's some others on the other side in the house that uh, think that that would be okay.
1: We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and I want to switch topics here for a moment, the return to the office for the federal workforce. That is still an ongoing topic of concern for at least some members of Congress, and earlier one of the influential senators had a lot to say about it. Right, this was really interesting because uh, the
0: Republican leadership as you know comes out after their weekly luncheon and they talk about their various priorities. And this is not a topic that generally comes up during those type of news conferences. It usually comes up in committee. But uh, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa was very forceful in her comments related to the fact that she thinks that federal workers are not and federal agencies are not doing enough to get back into the office. Uh, She says that she thinks that the government is wasting a lot of money right now because a lot of these offices are not full. And then she also made a charge that some federal workers Workers are teleworking and essentially getting extra money by not uh, actually coming into the city where they are supposed to be, in this case, Washington, D.C., and this is what she had to say.
3: How many of them moved away during COVID and are still getting paid for living in Washington, D.C.? It is fraud, folks. It's fraud. So you federal employees that are out there, we're coming after you.
0: Now, she didn't actually say how many of these people this allegedly is going on with, but this was clearly a warning. And uh, we're hearing more and more of this from Republicans that they really want something more done by the federal agencies to get people back into the office.
1: Holy corn crib. Her being from Iowa, she could be coming with a pitchfork, for all we know. (laughs) That's right. Wow. Yeah, that is very strong language. Have not heard quite anything like that. And while we have you also... Uh, The uh, idea of just the aging of Congress, and I only ask this in the context of the bigger question in the country over the putative presidential candidates, both being elderly men, we see votes in Congress possibly affected their outcomes by the age of some of the senators.
0: Right. And of course, this really uh, came under the uh, spotlight with what's happening with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He is back. He's getting well wishes from everyone after yet another incident where he essentially just froze up while he was speaking to reporters when he was in Kentucky. And he has gotten an okay from the uh, Capitol physician. Basically, they're saying that there were no seizures, no strokes, but it really has caused a big buzz on Capitol Hill about this age issue. You know, Senator McConnell is 81. His physical deterioration, if you will, has been pretty marked over the last six months, ever since he had a concussion and had a fall earlier this year. He really, for obvious reasons, doesn't want to publicly talk about it. But he did state last week uh, very firmly that he does intend to serve his term as leader of the GOP, as well as through the end of his term, which would be ending in 20. 2027. So right now he's 81 years old. Interestingly enough, another development last Friday, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is now 83, surprised some people by saying that she will run again for re-election uh, next year. So that could potentially, if she's re-elected, make her 85. And of course, we've talked about California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has had health problems, who is 90. Senator Chuck Grassley is 89. I think we're just just going to continue to see a lot of attention on the age issue. Obviously, people are living longer, and some of them are much healthier when they live longer uh, than others. Senator Grassley, for example, has been in pretty good health most of the time, and and so has House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But as we have seen with Senate Minority Leader McConnell, it only takes one unfortunate incident, and then things can change pretty radically.
1: Yeah, I've got this vision of brains in saline bubble jars (laughs) with wires coming in. <laughs> out and current going in, and they live on forever because the brain is kept alive and the body's been discarded. Actually, the wiring is just attached to their staff. <laughs> That's right. So the staff, when the staff gets to be 85, then we're really in trouble. I guess so, right. Never a dull moment. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Air Force has big ambitions for incorporating artificial intelligence into warfighting. But there's one big problem. As of now, the service doesn't have the processes or infrastructure to test and evaluate AI with the same rigor it uses for the rest of its weapon systems. And that's one of the main conclusions of a new study from the National Academy of Sciences, which says it's time for the Air Force to start building those processes. May Kasterline is the co-chair of the committee that conducted the study at the Air Force's request. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what they found.
3: The main difference between AI-enabled systems and more traditional systems is the rapid pace at which AI can change in response to data. So you retrain AI with new data as it comes in, and that creates a new version of the model. If situations are changing rapidly, then you likely want your model to adapt rapidly, and that involves retraining with new data. So it involves a fast, continuous cycle that the current sort of test and eval system isn't really set up to adapt to that at that pace that it would be required. Right now, it's a very almost serial approach. It's very linear and and waterfall-esque with defined milestones that take a bit longer uh, timelines to execute uh, and you just will not be able to adapt to the changes in operations as fast as you would like using those mechanisms
6: and, and correct me if i'm wrong but but i, th- I think the way we think about t is still the same in an ai context right that the overall objective is to make sure that the thing is going to do what it, it's intended to do it, it, if that's right what might the process look like other than not being serial in an AI context compared to a more military hardware centric context? What are the, what are the main differences that you would look for in a, in a reliable test and evaluation process?
3: So the biggest difference in AI that you also have to account for in in test is because it's a learned process, there's always a stochastic component to the model. There is, there is something we can't quite write down on paper mathematically to explain the model is the result of a learning process the main goals are the same. You want to test for functional performance. And then how does that functional uh, performance actually relate to operational performance? Those constructs conceptually are the same. You just now have to adapt for the fact that this thing isn't as formulaic as traditional empirical things are. We can't write down the math necessarily on paper that explains why it makes the decision It, it does. It's, it's making its decision based on on learned structure within the data. So you tend to rely significantly on modeling and simulation um, to capture the nuances in all the operational conditions that you're training your AI against to to really cover the sort of domain breadth that the AI needs to to capture. So those main differences tend to require a lot more automation and a lot more technology to to implement and, and sort of orchestrate, it's not to say that it's not the same for tradition. Like you do have to do a lot of orchestration and instrumentation for large platforms, obviously also, but it's, it's more the stochastic nature of, of AI that you have to build more robust, um, and adaptive T and E to more or less.
6: So, you know, going back to what you were indicating before, if the data inputs are constant and the system is constantly learning over time, including during an operational phase when this system is fielded, that suggests the T&E process really never ends. Is that going too far? I mean, you're you're going to need a test and evaluation system that's plugged into operations for as long yes. as the system's functioning.
3: That's exactly the point. You're continuously testing and evaluating um that and that is the other big break, right like historically, you know the traditional way of doing things is it's developmental testing, operational testing, initial operational capability, full operational capability it's a it's a process that you follow, and then whatever was built gets turned over to an operational group to to run to use here as you are deploying ai it's out in the field, it's seeing new things it's making decisions. Uh, if you want it to be able to make a new decision to react to something new that it hasn't seen before, you have to retrain. If you retrain, you have a new thing. You have a new model. If you have a new model, we have to we have to test that that model still performs the way we expected it to prior. It can still do all of the things we expected it to do, plus whatever new task or capability we've now expected it to learn. So you have to be able to test that in order to redeploy it. And right now, the way we do that is, you know, that would go bring all, go all the way back to the beginning of the test cycle and, and then back out. But the pace at which this data is going to be coming at us, the way the environments are likely going to be changing, this means you're going to have to retrain and by extension, retest much uh, faster and and more often. And so that does mean test components, test infrastructure, it's up for the Air Force really to figure out how to how to um implement this uh, does have to extend and it becomes more of a real time operational testing is is conceptually what what I've thought about in my my head um, that's you know they would have to come up with a way to think about it but the, it's it's sort of like that yes
6: and you mentioned there are some at least close analogies to this in in the commercial sector with autonomous vehicle industry. Why is that not the complete answer? Why can you not just lift and shift those solutions in the way that they're doing this this continuous learning process into a military context?
3: There is a lot to take from commercial industry. They have solved a lot of the technology hurdles that are going to be required. So there are these core there's core components and practices that uh, can be looked at as like parts of the blueprint. You know, AI ops, uh, you know, the operations of AI, uh, training or AI factories—that is—is replicated in many industries at this point, right? There's there are examples of this in industry. There's a handful of places, though, where DoD specific deployments start to break that mold that that actual model from commercial. The, the big ones that always stand out to me is for sure this um, the fact that real time operational testing likely has to happen closer to the platform. we can't bring everything back home all the time and that's really a function of having adequate communication, adequate pipes out to the field. We have to be able to move data, big chunks of data back and forth. So if you don't have comms then then you have to be able to do it more locally. Uh, and that breaks with sort of the traditional commercial model that backhauls everything to a cloud perhaps or a centralized data center and does it all in-house. Um, The next place it gets challenging why you can't lift and shift has to do with, uh, there's really extreme um, swap constraints, so size, weight, and power that are very unique to DoD. Uh, The ruggedization and environmental conditions um, make the hardware have to be slightly specialized, and so you can't just lift and shift exactly what they do in commercial for, say, you know, um, robotics applications and things like that. There's a lot of security requirements that commercial uh, they they tackle some of them, but not all. And then there's a lot of bespoke phenomenology that has to be modeled to really create the simulation capability to deal with edge cases and and retraining of these models for rare events. So stuff like that that's pretty bespoke and specialized. The DoD you won't get from commercial, but you could certainly look at them as an example and then have the department and the, the industrial base really invest in those gaps to make uh, that model work within this ecosystem.
6: And I'm glad you said DOD toward the end there, because we should probably make clear that the only reason we're picking on the Air Force here is the Air Forces who asked you to do yeah. this report. So it's not like they're behind necessarily. This is a DOD wide problem. Is that fair?
3: So from the committee's perspective, we were scoped to the Air Force. So the report is largely investigating the Air Force's um, current state of T&E. However, we did uh, have some input from more department level groups. And then also there's just a fair bit of experience on the committee itself. So, yes, I think that's a fair statement. They're, They're no far behind than other agencies necessarily, at least at the scale component. The committee didn't find any evidence that there was a large hiding enterprise scale T&E framework anywhere in the in the department. But the only caution I would say is that's not a reason to not do this now.
6: Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all of your recommendations. And as you said, a lot of this is going to be for the Air Force itself to figure out. But but if you had to pick one, what's the biggest thing that they need to get started on, like today?
3: I think the thing that that came through pretty loud and clear is is the concept of the the champion T and E is so pervasive. It turns out, and it, their questions were originally fairly narrow, um, you know. And 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 that's not to knock them; it was just the questions they thought to ask. However, when you really start to pick apart the implications of test and evaluation and operationalizing AI, you realize how many places within the department will have to get. Uh, involved and and change and modify. So you really need a single entity person who has the responsibilities, authorities, and liabilities to to execute that and and add rigor to the, the T&E approaches across the department.
6: And I guess that takes me to what I think is probably going to have to be my last question, which is, you know, since, since the implications of AI are going to be so pervasive and it's going to be embedded in probably – Physical weapon systems pretty soon here. Should we maybe be talking about just an entirely new TE process with AI embedded in that process as opposed to a traditional TE process over here for weapon systems and a separate TE process for AI over here on the other side?
3: It, it'll be up to the department to decide. I think one of the key takeaways from talking with uh, commercial industry is when building AI enabled systems the functional requirements the solutions that were engineered to provide the the answer to the any given functional requirement if ai was part of that solution the E component of it was thought up up front so before proposing a particular technical solution the next question is how would we test it and that that order doesn't necessarily play out in traditional E the way we do Weapon systems now, so that is a totally different way of of um, handling requirements and their connection to TNE from the beginning. Whether or not you have to create a, a, a parallel TNE process for AI or you can adapt existing um, is really up to how the the department wants to tackle it. But at minimum, it'll have to um, bring TNE into the requirements conversation significantly sooner to be able to support the development
1: effectively. May Casterline, co-chair of a National Academies of Science committee that is just out with a new report on AI testing and evaluation for the Air Force, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.